Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. Welcome to The Power Struggle, where we will be discussing questions around power, who has it, who doesn't, and how we can collectively organize to get it. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm joined with Jerry Lightfoot. Today, we will be discussing the continued mass protests around the United States. So how are you doing today, Jerry? I'm doing good, Evan. How you doing? Doing all right, man. It's been a little while since our last show, but I'm glad we're uh, putting one more in before the end of summer. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and now that things are kind of slowing down for both of us, We'll be able to crank this out a little more consistently, but yeah. yeah so, what, what have you been up to, man? What What are you What have you been working? Oh goodness, I, I've been work stuff, family stuff, school stuff, NLC Maryland stuff. Because you know, as you know, because you're on there too. But um, I'm the recruitment and selections committee chair, so we're going through trying to select that new cohort, going through the the recruitment process, and pretty soon applications will be due for them on September third. So then that's gonna be a whole thing, going through all the applications, scheduling all the interviews, interviewing everybody and just trying to pick the best of the best to be a part of uh, the 2021 cohort. How about you, man? Yeah, same. I've uh, been kind of working on Empathy Media Lab, a lot of content. I'm about to drop uh, my origin story in Cleveland and the mm -hmm. first public housing of the New Deal. Uh, that helped save my grandparents uh, when they lost their house during the, the Great Depression. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm excited to also be doing this power struggle with you. So, so with that, we can jump right in and uh, right. start with our headlines. And let me just get this together on this, this other screen. And so some of the headlines that we're going to be discussing, we have during the COVID, the pandemic wealth has changed and it's changed mostly for the better for the billionaires. So billionaires wealth is up 730 billion since the beginning of COVID or up 30% and everyone else's wealth is down 6.5 trillion or 7%. And so the government stimulus boosted the stock market and made the wealthy richer. A 60% tax on a billionaire pandemic on their gains would help fund free health care for a year and leave Bezos with $140 billion. Uh, I, I do want to mention the only reason why the stock market is doing good right now is the Federal Reserve has poured trillions and trillions into the stock market. They could put it in Main Street. They could have given it to the people. But as you see, the... Uh, stock uh, barons and the, the head CEOs are, are winning right now. So the next headline, uh, almost 20% of Americans with kids at home couldn't afford to give their children enough food to eat. Uh, while the billionaires are increasing their wealth, the people on the bottom are struggling more and more. And this story is, uh, seems kind of old these days, talking about Flint water, but Michigan has reached a $600 million agreement to pay Flint residents whose health was damaged by lead-tainted drinking water, according to media reports. And the 2014 disaster made 
some of the most impoverished people in the United States in Flint. It's a majority black city, a symbol of, and they, they say in this Associated Press uh, tweet, uh, a symbol of government mismanagement. What is lacking from this is that Governor Snyder, a Republican, is not, it's not about local government. It's not about the black city or anything like that. The white governor of Michigan, a Republican, Governor Snyder, knew about this and decided to allow this water to flow into Flint. Mm-hmm. They were talking about moving water to the Ford plants or to the GM plants, and they knew what was in it. And now the taxpayers of Michigan are helping to settle the, for the, the Flint residents who've been the victims of this. And yet Governor Snyder is free. He's walking free today. He is still, I think, a billionaire as well. And uh, it's, it's just disgusting. So that hopefully there will be justice sometime in the future uh, while this man is still alive. So, so going on the fourth headline, uh, we're seeing now that Trump is talking about giving a payroll tax cut. And for those who don't know, the payroll tax is something that was created in the 1930s to help fund Social Security. So when you're working, it's, uh, you pay into it, the employer pays into it, and then when you retire, you're able to collect. So uh, people aren't dying in their old age, um, poor and, and, and in misery, essentially. So Social Security works, uh, it talks about, uh, which is focused on saving Social Security. And uh, the, the tweet reads, the Social Security chief actuary has confirmed that if Donald Trump is reelected and implements his plan to permanent, permanently terminate Social Security's dedicated funding through the payroll tax, it will bankrupt Social Security by 2023. So people who are voting for Trump on the right need to understand that their Social Security, they're going to be victims of this just like everyone else. Social Security is extremely popular. It is bipartisan and Yet here we are. Uh, Trump said that he would never uh, touch Social Security, but here we here we are. So, so that concludes with our headlines. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of those headlines, Jerry. Yeah, no, I, I actually do. So, with the billionaires up in their money during the pandemic, it, it's one of those scenarios of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Like you said, uh, Federal Reserve poured trillions of dollars uh, into the stock market when they could have did that to the common for the common people. I think because they thought that they were lowering the interest rate on, let's say, uh, your credit cards or loans or even student loans, how they kind of stop those payments, they feel, okay, well, we're kind of giving them a giving them a, a break. We're relieving some of that stress. However, I don't think they're really understanding the the true burden or the true weight that the American people are under. It's so much to say about the billionaires and and how they're getting richer. It's almost sickening because you look at the stock market, it's doing great because you don't have that, you don't have that uh, uncertainty. You know, stock market is just like high school. It's just a bunch of rumors. It's a rumor mill. So if you're popular and, you know, you got good rumors flowing around about you, your stock is high. If you're not as popular and you have nothing in the works and, and no one cares about you, then your stuff's pretty low. And that's how I kind of equate you know, the stock market to to everyday life. You know, it, it's just your your run of the mill uh, high school actually with with all your different your jocks, your your eccentric kids, your band members, your your nerds, your cheerleaders, 
the you know the stoners whatever whatever you could think of there's it's a space in there for everyone um the part about 20 percent of americans not being able to feed their their children that's sad you know and one of our uh, noc members uh, ashley sharp she works tirelessly in prince george's county here in maryland to make sure that the people in that area they put on food drives they, they're making baskets. She's even opening up two supermarkets. So it's things like that. Sometimes we have to kind of take what's going on into our own hands, like take the fight out to the people and really get out there, mobilize, like we like to say, mobilize, initiate, activate, and really put in the work. You know, it, it could take just a group of us to come together and support something like that or to put something on that can help feed uh, tons of families. And it, on the back end of that, that's another reason why they're trying to push school so much because they're claiming how many of these uh, students that are having food or hunger problems come to school basically for the food, you know, for the breakfast, for the lunch, or, you know, the snack or whatever. So even at our kids' school, they've talked about, hey, well, if you want to come up to the school to pick up lunch on Mondays, we'll give you lunch from Monday to Wednesday. On Wednesday, we'll give you lunch for the rest of the week you know, if they need it. And it's not just lunch, it's, it's actually breakfast as well. And the sad part about it is a lot of these children are only eating when they were at school. And that the next meal didn't come until the next day that they were at school. So this is something that we have to address, not just the hunger part, but it's more so the economic part and paying people what they're worth, paying people a livable wage, stop running everything up with inflation because as high as things have jumped for, with inflation, the the wage percentage has only rose about less than 7%, I wanna say, over the last 60 years. So it's, it's incomparable the amount of how much everything it costs now to how much you're getting paid, you know, and it's not changing. Yeah, and I mean, it, it really is a, I think always a class issue as well, where this, this guy uh, talked about if you want to know whether you're in the working class, stop working for a couple of years and uh, see if you can survive. And if you can't, you're a part of the working class. So right. the working class against these people, the ruling class, who um, you know, can socialize losses and privatize gains constantly. And $7 trillion could have built our entire infrastructure, could have rebuilt all of the water uh, management and, and all the municipalities over 400 in the United States. It could build a magnetic levitation train coast to coast. Those are jobs. Those are construction jobs. Those are engineering jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, those are restaurant jobs. Those are everything. And where, where's it gone? And so my big concern is that the, the deficit or the, the debt now is 27 trillion. It was 19 trillion when Trump went in. And as soon as this election is over, you're gonna have the Federal Reserve probably saying, hey, we need to jack up interest rates like they did mm -hmm. under Carter. And uh, you know, it was something around almost 20% in the early 80s. So right now it's, it's near, near 1% uh, or even lower. So it, it's very hard to buy houses and it, it helps those who actually have the capital once they can start gaining 20% interest. And, and then pushing the next administration say, oh, you gotta cut, you gotta cut services, you gotta have austerity and those type of things. So that's, that's something we got to push, push back against. And we got to claw back these taxes. We got to have a wealth tax. I mean, until, until we figure out why and, and solve children starving because they don't have enough to eat, 
um, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to start pooling our funds a little bit um, from the top and uh, helping to redistribute it. Um, but I was gonna say it's, it's two things with that. Like that is the the most ideal scenario. You would think let's have a wealth tax. Like if we add an extra penny on top of whatever you're being taxed per per dollar, whatever you would never see it anyway. It's not anything that you're going to miss. However, you know greed greed is greed. People. No matter what, they're rich. They want to stay rich. They want to get richer. They don't want to do anything to really contribute to the poor. Now you have some good people who who don't mind that, but for the most part, people once they get that taste of money, like that true money, money breeds power. <laughs> people don't want to let go of power, and that's why we're in a position we are now, like trying to have to forcibly take something back so people can realize, you know, who really has the power, but. They, don't, they wouldn't want to do that. So to X that out, we can go one or two ways. We say, hey, rich people, you know, we could do like a wealth tax to where you could contribute some more because technically, let's keep it a buck. People who make all this money really don't pay taxes like that. They find, they hire these people, they pay them, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, to make sure that their money stays their money. Find all these loopholes to where they're not having to pay things back they're writing off this, they're doing that, they, they're uh, contributing to their own personal foundation. That's a 501c3 that doesn't have to pay taxes. So it's so much that, that actually goes on. But we spoke on what would be a good, uh, good measure for this or actually a, a good, something to remedy this issue is a, the UBI. So the universal basic income, we touched on that lightly in the first episode. If we actually come up with a number to where every citizen every month on the 1st or the 15th or whatever date that they choose would receive X amount of dollars, I think that would really tremendously help with the hunger issue that we have going on. That would help a lot with the poverty issue. You know, we can't speak on how everyone's gonna manage their money, but we know if money is the reason, if I have to choose between keeping a roof over my kid's head and maybe having a full refrigerator and not just having a full refrigerator, I gotta have the power on because I can have a full refrigerator, but if I don't pay that electric bill, all that food's gonna go bad anyway. So it's so many decisions that are being made on a kind of case by case, what's the best way? How do we just, how, you know, how do we just keep surviving? We have too many Americans that are just in survival mode and we have to find a way to fix that. I would rather see the UBI be a floor where no American falls below. And I, I believe in a federal jobs program, kind of what we saw with uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration, the, the uh, Public Works Administration uh, back in the 30s, where we have a lot of work that needs to, to be done. We, we need to rebuild this country. We need more teachers. We need more doctors. Um, we need more uh, everything from construction to scientists to research and development um, to new astronauts and as we go out into space um, we need we need all of the minds coming up and all the children to reach their maximum potential and so we have to invest in the labor population because labor precedes capital labor is what gives capital value so the more we can invest in our labor at, through I think meaningful work. And uh, when the, the private sector can't deliver jobs, there are so many jobs that this country needs and the rest, we can also help the rest of the world once we figure out our, once we figure out our problems here, 
I do think there's many other places in the world that needs clean water and those type of things as well. Um, I, I do see the UBI's value though, when, when people are, are, are on the floor, you got you gotta bring them up and, and exactly. you have to have a program that addresses that. Um, that's, but I, I do think also that when you're working in something you believe in, in a purpose and you're learning new skills, and that also I think is very important a part, part of the human spirit, as long as it's not coercive and, uh, you know, you don't have some boss over you whipping you all the time or something like that, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, you know, let a lot of the people who have made it tell you, oh, if I made it, so can you. You know, everyone just needs to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, you, you hold, you've heard the old adage before. Yeah. And frankly, I, I think that's, that's bullshit. You know, everybody is not born with the same opportunities. Everybody doesn't have access to the same opportunities or the same programs, the same knowledge, the education, it, it's just not out there for everyone. So we really, we really looking at everyone left to right and they're saying, saying that term like, oh, well, if I can do it, you can do it. it just, just do what I did. And it's not possible for some people. So I think humanity comes in the, in the play where, yo, as a human being, as a human being, if I see you struggling, if I see you down, I'm gonna do what I can to pull you up doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter what religion you believe in, doesn't matter what gender you are. None of that matters. It's the fact that I can I can empathize with another human being and know that's tugging at my heartstrings. Like I don't I wouldn't want to be down like that. And I pray to God if I ever was, if I ever had to be, that somebody would have heart enough to help me out. So I think that's just kind of going, you know, just bringing it all full circle like the ultimate commandment or the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We got to yeah. start somewhere. And that Horatio Alger story of like pulling yourself up from the bootstraps, it, straps, it's a complete myth. I mean, <laughs> at, it, at the beginning of life, we're getting carried in the world and we're being fed. And at the end of life, we're getting fed and, you know, carried yeah, in the world too. as well yeah. and pushed on a wheelchair. So it's, it's all about the community and cooperation and show me a billionaire and I'll show you the, the golden ladder that got them there. Exactly. I mean, I, there's not a single billionaire that you could give me five minutes on Wikipedia and I can show you, oh, their parents are here. Oh, their parent. Oh, Elon Musk's father ran an emerald mine and uh, he's a financial dude. Oh, yeah. Jeff Bezos got $500,000 to start uh, Amazon. And he also yeah. came from uh, what DW Shaw or something like that. It, I, these guys are all coming from Wall Street as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it goes on and on. And like someone like Marion Barry understood that uh, the jobs program that he did in Washington, D.C., he gave a lifeline to a lot of these these D.C. youth who have never gotten a job. And he forced people like Catherine Graham of The Washington Post saying, you will give jobs. You will you will allocate 10 jobs and you will pay uh, D.C. residents, uh, you know, a, a basic minimum wage at least. And there's still people you can talk to in their 30s, 40s, I, I think, um, maybe even a little older, who that changed their life. And they're on record saying, like, that job gave me the opening to the next job and the next job. So um, we need a jobs program, uh, especially when with the, uh, the unofficial unemployment rate I read today was almost 30% on uh, John Williams' shadow stats. I think the official is around 15%. It's... Uh, so I, I think this is a good segue where uh, when you have such tremendous inequality and you have populations that uh, 
are either extremely rich or extremely poor. Um, to bring up the, the next slide that we're talking about. So in this week in history. Oh, hold on, before, before you hop yeah, to that, please add a couple of more things. And sure. we were talking about the unofficial unemployment rate. See, the crazy thing about that is, and, and they give you the official one, like that's half of what the unofficial one is, is how you can always play with numbers and statistics. And when you learn like as a labor force, for you to be considered a part of the labor force and to fall into the actual unemployment rate, you have to have a couple of things. You have to be actively looking for a job and it has to be within about, I wanna say six months or whatever. So weeks. just like COVID right now, we've been, we're at the six month time. So if you had people that's lost their job at the beginning of COVID in March, right after in April, or people period that have just kind of given up because they're not actively looking for a job and they're just riding this unemployment wave, they kind of drop out of the labor force, what's considered the actual labor force. So they wouldn't even be reflective in the numbers of the actual Man. unemployed percentage. So that's why if you look at, like you said, the, the unofficial one was 30%, the official one was 15 That's how it could be so high in the difference. And I actually do believe more in the unofficial one because it's getting that, it's capturing that true number in America versus the one they're trying to spoon feed us to make us seem like it's all okay. Or because quote unquote, 9 million jobs have been started back up, you know, that were lost originally due to COVID. And one last point, with Michigan, 600 million, not enough. Um, I do hope everyone who, who was affected, they, they get paid, but I don't think it's nearly enough. I think everyone involved should have already been prosecuted and been locked up, be behind bars for life because lead poison is something that you cannot reverse. These people are going to have defects in, in heart and, and problems and issues and health, you know, health problems for years to come. Even their kids, these are things you can start passing down genetically. So I don't think it's even enough. If they would have did what was right in the beginning, replaced all the piping, what I think would have cost them $20 million. It was something very cheap, but they decided not to just because they didn't want to spend the money and look where we are today. So it is so goddamn criminal. And these people continue to skate. And so to the next slide uh, with... Uh, some statistics here. Uh, so this week, and specifically on August 21st, 1791, and uh, this comes from Eric Loomis, who does labor history, and you mm -hmm. see this as a part of labor history. The Haitian rebellion begins. Let's talk about one truly successful slave revolt in history and the incredible bravery of the, slave, the, the slaves themselves. So on August 21st, the Haitian rebellion begins. And uh, he, he kind of goes on to talk about, by the time the rebellion ended, 100,000 of the island's 500,000 uh, slaves were dead, as well as 24,000 of the 40,000 whites, French whites mostly. So in 1801, uh, the, the revolt uh, led troops to conquer Santa Domingo and ended slavery when they succeeded as well. So it was almost a, a 10 year uprising. And, uh, you know, the ruling class didn't fare that well. Of course, you know, one out of five slaves died, but over 50% of the ruling class uh, did not make it. So um, a lot of the, the ruling class, they are realizing that what, what we're starting to see on the streets, uh, 
may affect them as well. Right. And I agree a hundred percent with that because that's kind of like we talked about last time. They have to they only respect two things, loss of money, loss of life. And before the things in the street was no longer burning down their own neighborhoods, they were strategically hitting corporate entities, which was messing with their money. The the protests or the strike that we saw from the NBA, that we saw from the WNBA, that we saw from MLB, that we saw from the NFL teams, even though they're not playing there, they were practicing, they had, they had you know, team workouts and, and team practice, and, and they just walked off from that too. It's unprecedented, but we have to hit them where it makes sense. We have to hit them in the pocket. And just uh, briefly about the, the Haitian, Haitian uh, rebellion was turning to their their whole bringing on the independence. It was led by, I believe his name was Toussaint Overture. And the, the funny thing about that is he was, a, he was a free man. He was born, I think, his, I think his dad originally was a slave and then, you know, got his freedom. And that's how he got his freedom. But he had a little bit of money. He, you know, he was pretty well off. He was pretty wealthy. He was pretty educated. And then you get to the point where you're looking at all of these people that are just profiting off the backs of, of others. And couldn't have been him. Like, he made his money. He could have been like, well, I'm good. I have my money. I have my freedom. That's, that's their fight. But once again, that humanity, you know, that humanity, if you, you know, it tugs at your heartstrings. If, if you want to, we just want to see people have the same opportunities that we do. We want to see people enjoy life. We want to see people living. We don't want to see them just merely existing. And that's what he was seeing every day on his island. The people that looked like him was just, just beat down, trotted on, and just abused. And after a while, it was just, it was just too much. So it went from, from him and a few other people. And next thing you know, they had like 100,000 slaves, you know, joining the rebellion. So that's crazy numbers when you think about it. One out of five of slaves, but literally half of the, the ruling class was wiped out. And you, we don't, that's a last resort. We don't want to see that. Sometimes we understand war and we understand things like this in history, but thinking about that in terms of 2020, it just seems like we're so close to something like this actually popping off between the way that the president is deploying federal agents out and you can't even, they're not, you can't even tell who they really work for. They just garbed up in military attire, even though they're not military. So I don't understand how they're really doing that. And they're just doing whatever on these streets to protesters and how we basically have anarchy with, with armed people or militias coming to the place where the protesters are and inciting violence, doing uh, acts of violence, which we're going to discuss a little later, too, with the Rittenhouse kid. But, I mean, all, all of this is culminating. It's just brewing, 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 brewing. And the pot is on. The, the temperatures turned up and this 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 thing is boiling and it's getting to the point where it's about to boil over. Yeah, and just mentioning uh, about Haiti, they were under the debt thumb of France, I think until 1940. And the, the powers that be that kind of controlled trade in the Caribbean, they, said, well, you expropriated all this private property, so you, you owe a debt. And I think the actual island was paying off a debt until 1940 to France, which is also just crazy. Mm -hmm. And uh, another thing that, that happened in the 90s with Haiti as well, um, they, 
IMF came in and a free trade agreement happened and Haiti was once uh, food self-sufficient and they on, on rice and then the free trade came down uh, to Haiti and so then they allowed a bunch of US rice to be dumped into their economy and it destroyed all the rice farmers. Now they're completely food insufficient and dependent on food imports. And uh, that's really good for people who are trying to take precious metals and, and mining and uh, I believe bauxite and, some, and using cheap labor in the northern part of the country. Uh, but it's, it's horrible for any nation to be food insecure and, and not be fully autonomous on being able to feed its own people. Right. And just one, one kind of, oh yeah, please. Oh no, I was gonna say, and, and still talking about Haiti, like something that we could talk about recently, well, not too recently, it's been a few years ago, but when they had the huge earthquake that pretty much leveled the country, and you had like the Clintons, Clintons was raising all this money with the Red Cross, right? All this money through their foundation to go rebuild Haiti. And I think to the tune of, they raised over half a billion dollars to go toward revitalizing and rebuilding Haiti. They went over there and literally built like two or three houses that end up falling apart anyway. So <laughs> the crazy thing is you have this crazy, crazy, just devastating act of nature to rip through, tear your country apart. And the people that were vested or that had told the world that they're going to rebuild and everyone out the kindness of their heart is donating to it just to make sure that Haiti's rebuilt. I haven't heard anyone really ask the questions of where's the money? I mean, I've heard a few journalists here and there and people in random conversation, but where's the outcry? Where's the, you know, where's the anger of, yo, you literally fleeced $500 million. Where is it? Where is it? So to kind of bring some personal experience into that, I uh, was in Haiti and I was actually doing a, a short film um, in a previous international development job talking about what the international development did. And uh, we took uh, the road from Port-au-Prince all the way up past St. Mark into uh, the northern part, uh, Capetian, and uh, Caracol was the actual um, industrial park that was the big success of Haiti and a lot, and we actually went into the park and were able to film, film these folks who were in a textile, uh, textile sweatshop almost. And it was ran by a Korean firm. And this Korean firm got kicked out of, I believe some country in Central America, I believe it was Guatemala because of labor practices. And so then they went to Haiti because they had cheaper labor and there was less labor rights. And we also looked at some of the houses and the houses that were built after the earthquake, at least in the North, uh, were all falling apart after five years. Mm -hmm. And I was at the bar uh, at the hotel up North and I happened to be sitting next to this guy who was working with the Inter-American Development Bank. So it's like the, the bank for Central and South America it's kind of a, a regional bank that's connected to the World Bank and IMF. And we took, and I was talking about the road from Port-au-Prince up to the northern part of Haiti. It's less than 100 miles. And it was completely bombed out. It was destroyed. It took us six, seven hours to get all the way up to the northern part of the country. Yeah. And I asked him, I, I said, 
all of this aid is poured into Haiti for decades and decades, and this road isn't even connected. And how much would it cost to do a mile of road? And I think back then it was under 10 million. And so it was something, you know, along the lines of, of being like under a couple billion dollars uh, or under 10 billion. And this would connect the country. It would bring in a lot of jobs. Um, it, it, the infrastructure would help with uh, internal improvements and transportation, communication. You know, and it's not a, a lot of this, the people who are, are running these policies and programs don't care about the people. It's, it's really is about self-enrichment. And uh, right. it's disgusting because the Haitians are some of the poorest people in the Western hemisphere, if not the world. And uh, we got to change this. So yeah, get, get emotional even thinking about it, man. So, all right. So we're going into our feature, uh, some of the major news uh, that is going to be affecting us over the coming days, weeks, and months. So I, I'm pretty sure everyone knows about what just happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, anyone who's seen the film of Jacob Blake uh, walking away into his car and a police officer literally shoots him six times in the back and it come out that his kids were seven times in his back. His kids were in the car and uh, there, were, there were four or five cops there. They could have they done other ways of um, detaining him if, if that was what they felt they needed to do. They didn't need to shoot him seven times. And um, yeah, and so I, I brought this tweet up uh, from the New York Post because uh, the New York Post is really showing its hand, according to Parker Malloy, uh, whose tweet I, I uh, posted. Where on one side, it, it shows Jacob Blake having had a knife in his car when he was shot by police, mm -hmm. DOJ says. Now, keep in mind, this knife, there's, there's no uh, mention whether he's grabbing for a knife. Right. Whether it's a one-inch knife or, a, you know, what type of knife it was or where it was in the car. And then on the other side is a picture of, the teen gunman, Kyle Rittenhouse, and it's him cleaning the graffiti in Kenosha after the night of protests about the, the police shooting of Jacob Blake. And so this media framing is very important as we go into this, this election and, and the coming, coming weeks. So, uh, yeah, Jerry, you wanted to, to kind of focus on this as well. So please. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do literally because shit here we are again like here we are again the same shit the same exact thing this time it wasn't a knee this time it was seven bullets and thank god that jacob blake is not dead so the difference between him and george floyd and tamir rice and uh sandra bland philando castile uh brianna taylor who's once again arrest the cops that killed brianna taylor side note uh, Kentucky's Attorney General, please do your job. But the difference between Jacob Blake and all of them is, yo, he survived. So this time we're not going to get the the cop version, and that's it. And we have to kind of imply or you know deduce whatever else happened. We literally are going to get his version if he survives. And this was done right in front of his kids. His kids was in the car. I think his girlfriend or the kid's mother was out in the street with him. He had other family members that were right there. All right. So 
if whatever they were trying to do from the way originally that I heard the story, he was instructed to get his ID. He informed them my ID was in the car. That's why he walked around to the car and, you know, opened the door was supposedly to get his ID. So now you're, you're looking at that. Even if you look at the video before he even walks around the car, and he's on the more so the passenger side. As he's starting to come around the car, he has two cops with guns already drawn, like, close in his back. He hadn't even walked around in front of the car, let alone to the got to the driver's door to open it before. And that's when the cop pulled on his, his white beater and fired seven shots. So for whatever the reason, why do you think I have about five cops there? I have two cops following me with guns already out in my back. What weapon am I going for? How am I going to win that physically? Like, please tell me, unless I have some kind of some X-Men marvel dc universe type power to where i'm stopping bullets freezing time and doing some crazy stuff that's not happening you know what i mean so this once again is showing like you said new york post is showing their hand this is what the media does when it comes to the black and brown people who lose their life when it comes to black and brown people that are victims they try to find every way they can to demonize them to demonize them so they they appear less human, they appear that much more smaller. And then people will start kind of not even second guessing what the cop did. They kind of start looking at it like, yeah, you know, he, he had a warrant. Yeah, supposedly he, you know, beat up his, you know, his wife or whatever. Yeah, he has some domestic violence. Oh yeah, he robbed this store. All right, I can see why they shot him. You know, people start trying to rationalize the action of the cop based off of this person's previous history or their, their their rap sheet, trying to make them seem, like I said, that much less human, like they're a minister society, like they're a rabbit dog that should have been put down a long time ago. So this is what we have to deal with. And then you look at, on the other hand, you look at what they're doing for this white kid who literally gunned people down while they were protesting. You know, they're trying to to paint him in this light of a, of a savior, because even if you look at how the news was was calling him before, they were calling him a vigilante. And I'm saying vigilante, so he took the law in his own hands and was helping, he was doing good. Like, what was he doing? Because Batman is a vigilante. Spider-Man, like, all the superheroes that we know, they're vigilantes. You're not a vigilante when you go out in a peaceful protest and you start gunning people down. You're a murderer. So let's call it for what it is. You're a murderer, not a vigilante. And just stuff like this, how they try to, to paint them in this light of, yeah, He's a good kid. He's cleaning graffiti. He drove all the way from Illinois. He's just there trying to help. I don't care if he drove from California. The point is he walked into a protest and he start he gunned people down. Why are you, who are you? You're a 17 year old kid. Legally, you can't even own the firearm that you were carrying, that rifle. So what are you doing in the streets of Kenosha with that gun? I read something today. His mom drove him from Illinois, Antioch to to Kenosha, and there's pictures of him as like a five-year-old with a enormously large uh, AR-15 looking M16 kind of rifle with a silencer a suppressor, and uh, he's also at one of the the MAGA Nuremberg rallies. Um, there's a picture of him right in the front row. Um, and the the head of the police commission has come out with extremely racist comments about how we need to you know just put every put all these people in in a cage and just you know do away with them 
they're they're worthless and so that 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 lessening of people you know and this is this is someone who's a a head of law enforcement who's in charge of upholding the law and he looks at citizens like this you know it's this is a problem did you hear the other thing that he said though what else and he was just like oh well the people who got shot and he said well they shouldn't have been out after curfew Basically, not not anything with the murderer, not anything about them exercising their their First Amendment rights, or or what just recently happened with your own member of the police department shooting Jacob Blake. But oh yeah, they should have been out after curfew. But yeah, continue. It's crazy. Yeah, and uh, you know, unfortunately, the framing matters. Um, you know, but popular opinion, public opinion, you know, you, you go to war with the army you have and not the army that you hope for. And we may want American voters to be a certain way, uh, but there are voters who, you know, see the, the fire and, and see this shit. And I don't know, man, I, I don't know how this, this will actually change, you know, all of these protests and things like that. Um, I think as we go into this, this long fall and, uh, through the election and into the inauguration, we're going to have a lot of people on the streets and a lot of demonstrations. And I think it's, it's also important to make sure that we're hyper-organized and we don't allow provo- uh, provocateurs into our marches and our mobilization. Um, and we got to stick together as well. Uh, and Frankly, I, I think some of the anarchists, um, I, I, they're serving Trump in some, time, in some ways, you know. I, I think burning stuff down, there is a place for everything. But I, I also, people who don't want power, don't care about power, don't want government, uh, who just show up to, to I don't know, they, I think that also can help Trump as well. And I, I know that's an unpopular look uh, from a lot of people. So, so kind of how I see it yeah yeah but the crazy thing with that a lot of the anarchists that you speak of is it's been shown and documented when they get those still frames or they they finally look at those videos who are these people exactly like these agitators the ones that are starting off the looting that are breaking into stores that are starting fires you know that inciting other acts you know a lot of times they've been law enforcement they've been prior law enforcement or just other individuals, you know, not even down there for the actual protest. So that's and just who, who, and who's paying these people in Portland? Right. Yeah. That's, that's Portland the, and that's, like Portland, I've I've seen some some. Uh, it's it's almost all. There's no Black Lives Matter anymore. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're going after a federal courthouse was the pretense to be able to send federal troops or federal right. law enforcement there. And it, it's, there is no, it is no more about the Black Lives Matter. It's, it's gang counter gang. Uh, it's, it's a problem. And these are not, these are not allies. You, you can't ally with someone who, who you don't know what their ideology is and they're just there to, to break shit, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I agree because those people aren't there to express their ideology. They're not there to to try to make the world a better place. They're literally there to watch it burn and to actually start it, start the process of it burning. So 
a lot of times these people, like you said, who are paying them, like who's paying them? Because they're not doing this for free. You know, they have some inner working with another organization or they're trying to impress someone in an organization that they want to be a part of. So they're like, hey, this is this is your admission. These are your dues. This is what you have to do. And it, it, it gives the protests a bad name. But once again, when you really look at the thick of things, you see it for what it is. But that part of the story is not being pushed to mainstream America. It's not being pushed on the media. All you're going to hear is, oh, the Black Lives Matter protests for this person turned violent and this was this broke out and they burned these stores and these people got hurt. And it's like, but that had a lot of white people doing it. You know, fucking up the whole like, that's that's another thing that's that's going on. It's another it, it's so it's like all white. Like, come it's on. ironic if it, if it wasn't so goddamn tragic, you know? Right. So you try to blame the movement and you, you're trying to see right there. That's why you can't trust them. They're, they're just animals. All right, sir. That happened two hours after the protest was over and you realize it was all white people that did the shit at the end of the day. So it, it's not, it's not us. You know, we just, we just want equal rights. We just want the ability to live. You know, once again, going back to that whole Thomas Jefferson part in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where's my pursuit of happiness? Where's my life? Where's my liberty? I don't want to have to wait to the afterlife to get it. I want it here now. Well said. So this was uh, another um, kind of, uh, if you want to kind of talk a little bit about this. Yes, I can actually. So here we are. This is uh, a little tweet from the Washington Post talking about the Milwaukee Bucks becomes the first NBA team to boycott playoff game to protest social injustice. And I'm going to say kudos to them for writing it, but that's actually not historically accurate. Um, Back in 1961, Bill Russell and the other black members on his team of the Boston Celtics at the time walked off the floor from their game or decided not to suit up on their game against the St. Louis Hawks um, because of racial injustice. And when the black members on the St. Louis Hawks heard what was going on, they decided to, to stand in solidarity with them and they didn't suit up or they just walked off the court as well. So it has been done before. I don't want to call it a boycott like we were discussing earlier. I think that's, once again, I'm trying to put a certain spin on it. It's not a boycott. Boycott is something that a consumer does. We're not, they're not the consumers. They're actually the labor. So they can't boycott something that, that they provide. You know, we can boycott by not watching, but they're, they, they, walk, they walk out. That's more of a strike. And that's a labor strike at that because they are the direct reason why we have the goods and the service and the product, which is the NBA. And um, man, kudos to them because people don't understand. They want them, oh, well, this is their job. Go out there and play basketball. You're in a bubble. But mentally, things that you watch happen day in and day out to people that look like you. I don't care how much money you have. You know, a lot of these a lot of these athletes grew up in these neighborhoods where this stuff is happening on a constant basis. They can identify with it because they weren't always rich. They come from, you know, that, that poor family or maybe that single parent home or even maybe having both parents, but they hardly saw them because they had to work so much in order to make ends meet. They know what the struggle's like. They haven't been that far removed from the struggle. And a lot of them give back tirelessly 
to their community to make sure that the kids there had better opportunity. So when this happens, when they see another person, once again, that looks like them, another person going through these same things that we thought would probably be a little better based off of the progress we had gotten from the George Floyd protests with the different executive orders signed in for cops, the actions that states were taking for, you know, to limit the power of the police force and the things that cops could and could not do. We just see all of that go down the drain in 10 seconds with Jacob Blake getting shot seven times in the back. And we're still like, yo, y'all still haven't gotten it. What is it going to take for y'all to get it? And I don't think a lot of times this act was just the fact of we'll show you type of thing. It's the fact of, yo, we're tired. We're mentally tired. We're physically exhausted. This is draining. This is hurtful. You don't know what it's doing to the psyche of, a, of every black and brown person in America that has to see one more time. Watch it play 30, 40, 50 times on every news uh, channel and every syndicated, uh, syndicated show. You know, it, it wears you down and it just, it puts you to a place of almost hopelessness and despair, which you kind of got to quickly snap out of because you still have to keep your regular life going. But man, for, for that kid in that instance, we become them. And that's something that, that, that they wouldn't ever understand. So when they decide not to play, it's not because I can't play. It's because, yo, we literally as black people right now have the weight of the world here and here. And we still have to smile. We still have to wake up every morning. We still have to make it happen. Sometimes that weight, we just need to take it off for a little bit and sit it down. Regroup, you know, rest up. And I, I, I pick that load back up in a few. But for right now, I can't continue. And that's what the NBA did. And I applaud them. I respect them. If they decide to not play for the rest of the season, I'm good with that. Because we have to make the points and we have to hit them where it hurts in that account in that wallet yeah and the, the corporate media as you said is is bending over backwards not to call it a strike because right. and it's a wildcat strike they didn't go through the players union or anything like mm -hmm. that they together with the courage of knowing the pressure and the insults that they would face they decided that this was more important than than the, this social movement that they want to show their leadership when people are asking them 20 years from now where were they Right. They, they are now in the front of this and let's call it a strike. I, I read something on Axios uh, and about the bubble, you know, and, and they're bending over backwards because once we workers and the players are workers, they're, they're the product, they're the service, they're the, they're the workers, they're the value add. It's not the owners or anyone else. They're the actual, they're the skills, they're the labor. You know, once we stop giving our labor, we can shut the system down. Right. And we may have to shut the system down, uh, as we'll talk a little bit later, you know, if this election isn't free and fair. Um, but let's, let's call it what it is, a strike, and, uh, you know, salute to these, these players, the courage that they showed. And one, one other thing, the fact that they're all in a hotel because it's playoffs and mm -hmm. COVID's going on, it makes it easier to do a strike when you're when you're in touch with your fellow workers on that level where you're waking up next to them and you're you're eating with them and and you're sleeping in a, ho a room right next door so so make sure wherever you're working that you're you're on that level with your your people so that you know when the call comes that we all we all step up
And just real quick, um, once again, we say kudos to the NBA, but also want to shout out the WNBA. They didn't play all their games. They came together and decided not to play any games uh, yesterday and, and tonight as well. So kudos to the WNBA, kudos to the major league baseball players that decided not to play the NFL teams that were conducting their their practices that kind of walked off the field and just stood in solidarity with each other and addressed the media in uh, kind of like in posters, uh, namely the Detroit Lions. I know they definitely did that. And we've had other players, tennis players, I can't think of the young girl's name right now, but she's like half black and half Japanese, I believe. She dropped out the semifinals of the competition she was in, the tennis competition, to show a protest. And I think it's like another one or two black golfers that did the same. So all the players across all the sports that came together decided not to play. Thank you. Thank you for, for your support. Thank you for your, your voice. Thank you for your platform. But please, please, please don't let that be the end of it. Get involved, find a way to support the fight find a way to help mobilize, find a way to contribute to the mobilization, find a way to get our agenda in front of the people who matters, you know, because we can have all the ideas in the world, but we got to have people that's going to push our agenda. So, yeah. Yes, indeed. So as we're about to round the corner to uh, talk a little bit about the, uh, the elections coming up, I just wanted to bring up this little news cycle from way back in May, uh, where good old Rush Limbaugh, who's been uh, one of the major, major propagandists uh, of the right wing, you know, through the 90s and all the way to the point where this year, I think he got the, the Medal of Freedom at uh, Trump's State of the Union address. And he's talking about, you know, predicting a civil war back in May. And, uh, you know, we're every, a lot of people are talking about it now, but I, I think that we're this is one of the strategies uh, that that Trump needs to continue to stay in power. And uh, I'm just going to kind of move into the next one, unless you want to say something about that, Jerry. No, we, we spoke a little bit about it before. Please, I I hope it doesn't come to it, but. It just seems like the recipes in the pot and it's, it's, it's cooking, it's overcooked. Yeah. And I hope it doesn't boil over. But if it does, you know, we need to be in a place where we can protect ourselves. So everyone, please, if you have Second Amendment rights for a reason, please purchase at least something to protect your home, protect your property, protect yourself in the case that this country does go to shit. Because you don't want to be out here naked in a world full of guns and bullets and you running up with this. So exercise your second amendment, go, go, go get yourself a, a firearm, please. And never forget though, that the worst kind of war, all war is hell and, and horrible and terrible, but the civil war is, is one of the worst that you mm -hmm. could ever, it's the most destructive kind of war. And it's brother against brother and let's let's avoid it and let's stick together and uh let's focus on the next uh what is it 67 days or something like that before the election so i did want to play this uh because this is what's at stake with this guy and then after that we'll go for another four years because 
You know what? They spied on my campaign. We should get a redo of four years. So obviously he's talking about his third term. Uh, he's got a lot of children who also uh, Ivanka uh, wants to, to run on and uh, I'm sure Trump Jr. wants to run. So this is this is the uh, the dictatorship of uh, the, the family dictatorship that that is uh, being set up. So um, Another thing I, I just want to point out, obviously, the Republican convention is happening. And uh, someone pointed out that the Republicans took the word indivisible out of the Pledge of Allegiance at the Republican National Convention. And some people thought it was a mistake. It was done on purpose. And indivisible. Uh, why would that be taken out? Uh, there are some, there's some speculation that the QAnon Folks, uh, General Flynn, as uh, July 4th, did a QAnon salute, uh, the former national security advisor for Trump who was indicted. Uh, on one side, you got Trump talking about the Democrats last week, lying about how they took the word God out of the Pledge of Allegiance at the Democratic National Convention. Yet these folks who've been talking about the Constitution whenever they're not in power, and whenever they're in power, they don't care about the Constitution. They talk about God, and yet some of the top people, like it's coming out that what Graham's son or or uh, the guy from Liberty University, right? Uh, the biggest cuck, uh, having some pool boys sleep with his wife. Um, it it goes on and on the, the hypocrisy and the hypocrites are you know hypocrisy is everywhere in the world, but it is at a level. I I mean it's biblical. And so this is the fight. Um, <laughs> there's a lot there. Uh, I don't know if you want to jump on or, or kind of just move on to the next one. So. And I mean, all I got to say with the term, that's not going to happen. They have rules in place as, as much as people like to try to circumvent the Constitution, it is there. And the 22nd Amendment that was ratified definitely states that a president can only serve. But outside of that, if they serve two or less years, then they can seek re-election you know, two more times. So basically, they can be president for eight years with two four-year terms, but no more than 10 years with that two-year kind of addendum if they had to take over, almost like a Lyndon B. Johnson did for for Kennedy to take over the presidency under two years, you can run for re-election. Then after that, you can run for re-election again. But a third term, no, he's not. He's not FDR, and and that's not happening. And why would he even want a third term? Like, bro, you're about to be almost eighty. You've you've lived past life expectancy for a man anyway, and you want the hardest job. And you want four more years of that, and you want another four more years on top of that. So you could be like pushing 90 as a president, like nah. You gotta show that there's there's better qualified people. Like I don't understand why we keep electing all these old people to run the country anyway. Like we don't have people our age, people in their 40s that are comparable, that are capable, that have, you know mentally they have it, they know what it takes, and they have the energy to do it. I I don't. Know. I don't get that part. That part just baffles me. Like, yo, these people are literally on their deathbed. We want them to run the country. 
given the most stressful job in all of the world. But who am I? With the whole Pledge of Allegiance thing and, and then talking about God, I think the government as a whole, not just the Democrats, not just the Republicans, they pick and choose. They pick and choose on when they want to incorporate God, when they want to not incorporate God, when they want to go with the separation of church and state, when they don't want to go with it because supposedly we were, we were a Christian nation or maybe like more like a Presbyterian or whatever. But we were basically Christian principles founded like under God. So that part, it just, that's why I, I, I'm a man of faith, but at the same time, I understand that religion is, is extremely da dangerous. People have fought wars and will continue to fight wars over religion. If you have those certain words to say to people, it's almost like you can brainwash them into doing whatever you need them to do with the more, with the point that they're doing it, they're doing works of God. And, and, and to do that and how he's praying on event, you know, evangelicals and, and old Christians, you see the Democrats did this there, they don't believe in God, they're trying to remove this, remove that. It's just one, leaning on that again, just, just that mind, just that control of religion and how you wanna do things that are appeasing to God. You wanna stay in the good favor and good graces of the Lord. So you want to you want to uphold his name, you want to uphold his image, and and live your life in that in that way. And things that don't, you want to remove yourself from them. So it's almost like mentally or subconsciously you're putting out there. If you vote for for if you vote Democrat, then you're not doing the Lord's work. You're kind of going against God because they're against God. And people who don't really think beneath the surface, they'll believe that in their subconscious, and they'll in turn do just such so we have a first amendment and it, it's uh freedom of religion it's freedom for religion whatever religion you want and freedom if you don't believe in religion and uh let's keep that together you know nicely said for sure so a big part of the election now with covid is uh going to be looking at mail-in ballots um and so the post office has been under assault and so as the tweet says uh, Representative Maloney has received new internal United States Postal Service documents with nationwide performance data from July, August, showing the delays we have all heard about are actually far worse. And they had a debate about it. And let's keep in mind, the post office is built into the Constitution. The idea of connecting the entire nation with the communications infrastructure is what the post office is. Mm -hmm. And it could go a lot further than just mail. It can go also to postal banking and a lot of other things. So the post office being slowed and all of, a lot of these changes started uh, right when Louis DeJoy got into power at the head of the post office in June. It was fine until then. They're, they're blaming it on COVID. It's not because of COVID. It's because these folks have stopped doing overtime. Uh, they've taken out some of the sorting machines and, uh, we're in, a, we're in a lot of problems, because let me just go on to the next uh, slide, where talking about how the, uh, for whatever reason, it's a little uh, frozen here. So you can't see that right now, I don't think. Can you hear me all right? No, you're frozen. Yeah, it changed, yeah, it changed over. Okay, cool. So yeah, Greg Palast, he did a lot of work um, I'm saying my internet connection is unstable, but uh, we'll keep moving. 
Uh, Greg Palast, he, he did a lot on the cross check in 2016 that helped fix the election for Trump. And so more, more than 141,000 ballots were, were rejected in 2016. So if you mail your vote, make sure to follow your state rules. Some require a witness for signatures. Most require first time absentee voters to include a copy of their ID. And then even in uh, 2020, we have some issues because in 2016, Trump won Wisconsin by 23,000 votes, but more than 23,000 absentee ballots were rejected in the state's presidential primary in April. And more than 37 primary ballots were rejected in Pennsylvania, a state Trump won by just over 44,000 votes. So in 2020, in this election, in the primary, there's already being major rejections of these uh, mail-in ballots. Mm-hmm. So this presents tremendous, tremendous problems going into the election with mail-in voting. You have COVID, you have the unrest, you have the economic depression. Um, so I'm gonna take off the screen sharing and uh, so that stop pulling so much from here and uh, we can kind of talk a little bit and, and wrap this up. So. Yeah. And so, looking at the election, what what are you thinking? Um, well, just to piggyback what you were just saying on, on the postal service, another thing that people have to be cognizant and mindful of is when they do their absentee ballots, if you actually look at the envelope itself, it has like a number in it, like a code. Either I think it's either at the end or it's at the middle. It has an R and it has a D. And you know, if you're if you're a Democrat, of course it has a D. If you're a Republican, it has an R. And they were saying just, if you can, when you mail the stuff back, make sure that doesn't show. Because if I'm a postal service member and I'm biased and I'm a Republican, I don't want the Democratic vote, then those can get easily tossed or lost you know, in the mail. In the same way, if I was a, a Democrat and I saw a Republican vote come across and I wanted to do something malicious to it. So we just have to, to of course, know the law, make sure that we're, we're doing everything in our power to right we're exercising our, our right to vote, but however, we're following things to the letter of the law, just so when it gets there, if we need a, a witness signature, if we need to include a copy of ID, if we, any of those things, we, we've checked all the boxes so we don't get our vote tossed because I'm sure they're not saying, hey, there's something wrong with your vote. You need to do this and that so we can count it. They're like, mm, this is a no-go and they're tossing it. So while we're thinking that the vote that we made counted, it could have got tossed out. So we just have to be very diligent, make sure we dot our I's and cross our T's and 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 vote. So with this election, I, I don't know, honestly, I, I really don't. I think that Biden made his move with Harris more so trying to solidify a certain amount of support, especially from the minorities. I don't really think that he wanted to choose Harris as his VP. Uh, I honestly really don't think he wanted to choose a woman as his VP if he really had total, full autonomy of selecting who he wanted to select. And I mean, sad to say, uh, unless Biden really comes with some thunder and some heat, which I don't know, to me, he he seems a a little touched now, like in his old age, like he's a little mentally senile. I don't know. I'm not sure he can be. Trump. And I think the, the Harris move was trying to insert, ensure that he would have a certain amount of support. You know, we see on a daily basis more and more where the majority of our country's heads are at when it comes to race, economics, 
and other problems of the issues of this country. And sad to say that they're, they're not in a place of uniting everyone. They're in a place of dividing. They're in a separatist mindset, a nationalist mindset, you know, may I add. So that part is scary. Uh, just, just seeing all that and hoping that the people who can, who, who do have the numbers, the young people, the people in our generation, the people a few years beneath us come out and vote. You know, so if they if they do that, if we as a generation do that, then we can win this election. We can take back this White House. And it's not about falling in love with Biden. Politics is never about falling in love with anyone. Alliances are constantly shifting. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like uh, you step you you can never step in the same river twice. You know, things are constantly in flux. It's Pantoray. And, you know, the thing is, there's three phases going into it. There's going to be the, the next 67 days until November 3rd. It's phase one. That's going to be making sure that people are voting, people are registered, getting the vote out. And then it's going to, the election's not going to be determined the night of the election, November 3rd, because it's going to take counting. And there's going to be a lot of back and forth and a lot of lawyers involved. And, and there's going to be a need to stay vigilant between November 3rd and January 20th, when Trump is going to be removed from office. That's phase two. And then phase three is we're going to have to push Biden harder than Wall Street is going to be pushing him and harder than the factions that right now are, are buying a piece of him, or at least they think they are. Um, and, you know, Biden is... But it, as I said before, you go to war with army you have. It's either Biden or fascism. And it's not going to be pretty. If Trump is here for another four years, I don't think there's even going to be a question of a third term. I don't think this, this republic of this experiment for the last 230 years is going to continue. Right. Uh, I, I think we may be able to do a second republic that we may or may not see in our lifetime. Like France has had multiple republics. But this republic is done. There's no way that it's going to it's going to hold up. And Trump is vindictive, too. And he uh, he's insane. So suck it up, hold your nose, vote for Biden. And whatever it is, we go into it and we're going to push Biden left and, and make sure that he does represent all of the people much better than any other person has ever represented. Um, that's kind of how I look at it, but there are three phases. We're going into some of the most important parts, get your, make sure you're registered, get your vote in early. Uh, if you're voting by drop ballot, make sure you get that all taken care of. Do your due diligence, bring your family members, make sure your friends are, are, uh, registered, but then also get ready to, uh, to go on the streets afterwards when Trump declares that the election was fraudulent or that he's the winner when the votes haven't been counted. Right. And we're going to need the military. And uh, frankly, you know, we should be counting generals. How many generals are actually anti-constitution, pro-Trump? Because it, at the end of the day, it's it's only going to be the military that's going to be able to remove him. I mean, I, I agree with that too. Um, I was actually having this conversation with my uncle the other day about the military, less in the you know, less toward the angle of them having to remove him from office, but more toward the angle of if civil war broke out and we have anarchy in the streets and they deployed the a military, you know, how would that look? You know, you have all these, these well-equipped trained soldiers and would they go out there and try to do what, or would they, you know, 
kind of break apart and go with their side. So, I mean, those are things we have to have to take into account. Like you said about our republic, I mean, America is still, if you think about all the countries in the world, America is still like a baby country to have frozen as far as we had, as far as we has over the short time to the height that we have in, in being like the number one world power, like the one that the whole world looks to. Man, civilization and, and those types of republics that they usually take hundreds of years to establish. And we did it kind of like in a hundred and, and change, you know, we, we rose to power. Like you said, if we continue down this rate, I'm not sure that it's gonna survive. Like all republics and all nations fall, all countries fall, and when they fall, they fall hard. I pray it's not during our lifetime because I don't wanna see what that looks like for America to basically turn into a third world country. But it's possible, especially you know, with the way the leadership of, of this country, the direction it's going in, the, the policies that's being instituted by our, you know, our Congress, by certain by the administration and, and all these different other avenues and areas, we gotta get it together. I mean, fast. So voting yeah. is a start, but it's like you said, it's so much more work that needs to be done after that vote takes place. And it's a tripartite world. Uh, there's China, there's Russia and the US, and those are the three power blocks. And we have the best fighting chance in this country, I would say. And I think the, the concept of America, which has never been fully actualized, we've gone through, I, I do see this as a fourth revolution where the first one being the, the war against Great Britain, second one, civil war, third one, New Deal, destroying and, and winning World War II against the Nazis. Mm -hmm. fascist. And then this is the fourth one. And what we should come out of this fourth revolution is an economic bill of rights, making sure everyone's guaranteed the right to vote, making sure everyone, uh, that there is no more homelessness, that there is every child gets the same level of schooling and opportunity and everyone gets a job who, who wants one. Um, and food. Yeah. And food, of course. I mean, this is, and these are rights that are enshrined and we need to write it into the constitution mm -hmm. and, and really, really kind of take it to the next level. And we may not see all of this in our lifetime, but it, it is really thinking about the, the next generation and the next generation after that and how we can secure the peace is through economic prosperity for everyone everywhere. And that's, that's what I think I'm fighting for, so. I mean, I, I understand everything that you said and I'll challenge one point. That you that you mentioned when you say we may not see it in our lifetime and my question to you would be why not you know like we're the ones we have this vision we have this mindset and like we discussed in our first episode if we get people who align with our way of thinking who think the same way it's probably nine times out of ten going to be our generation or younger if we can push out the old people in power that's how you see all of these random people pushing on incumbents. They've never been in politics before, but they're they're motivated. They have good ideas. They have great intentions, and they're winning. If we can get people in there who are really willing to serve their constituents, serve their community, make this world a better place, and not just pad their pockets, then we can see it in our lifetime. We can. I like I like ending on an optimistic note. So um, that's. That's great. And I, I fully agree with that. So, 
I guess in closing, uh, we talked we talked about a lot of things. This has been a longer podcast, uh, which is which is all right. We're still uh, getting our feet wet. Uh, tomorrow in Washington, it's the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington mm-hmm. that uh, was organized by A. Philip Randolph, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, featured prominently. Um, I believe it's the Action Network, um, led by uh, Reverend Sharpton and uh, Martin Luther King III. Uh, it's going to be down there, and they're going to be organizing. They're, they're talking about voting. They're talking about civil rights. They're talking about accountability of the police and uh definitely check it out and uh this this will probably come out you know after tomorrow but let's let's stay together people and uh continue to organize and uh, work together and real quick on my end i just wanted to yeah. like i said in episode one i need you guys our, the whole reason why we're doing this is not only are we we're trying to get you know our voice out for what's really going on we, we want to educate you, our audience, you, the listener, okay? Uh, I know a lot of you, if you're already listening to, to things such as this, then you're on the right path and you have an enlightened mind and I wanna help you expand it. So please read all you can. Read from credible sources, just a couple of books I have going on right now. Well, actually more than a couple, like four. So Policing, Policing the Black Man, it's by uh, Angela Davis. Actually, it's edited in an introduction by, by her, but it's composed of uh, many different authors and they're talking about ways of policing the black man. Another one, The Color of Law, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. The Counter-Revolution, How Our Government Went to War Against Its Own American Citizens by Bernard Harcutt and The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, okay? So you see these books, I mean, they're all thick. We can't just hop on here and just talk off the top of our head when we try to educate you guys. We're doing our homework, we're doing the work, we're trying to enlighten ourselves and grow in the process. So thank you, thank you for your support. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching and stay with us. More good things to come. Absolutely. It's been uh, a good, uh program. Thanks so much, Jerry. I really appreciate you and uh, keep on pushing, man. All right. Thanks, Evan. Have a good night, everyone. Take care. If you like what you hear, hit the like button, leave a review and subscribe to hear future episodes. You can follow the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag PowerStrugglePodcast. And you can find us at EmpathyMediaLab.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Patreon at EmpathyMediaLab. Stay well, everyone, and educate yourself, organize, and mobilize to fight the power and create a brighter future.